Good morning. Welcome to Presbyterian Church of the Covenant. Thank you for braving the cold and the rain yesterday. My goodness, that was a, that was a show, all right, of nature at its best. Uh, Pastor Jason and his family are homesick, recovering, and Pastor Sharon let me know yesterday she is COVID positive. So she's resting at home. She, this is her first bout with COVID. She made it all this time. Um, but our prayers are with both of them. But in Jason's absence, we have Pastor Eric Wayman here. He is a lifetime resident of Costa Mesa and has been pastoring here in the city for, gosh, most of your adult life probably. <laughs> yes. Anyway, we're so happy to have you. Um, Pastor Eric is committed to following his shepherd wherever he leads him and investing in whomever God places along his way. So today, folks, that is us, and we are excited to have you. We are officially in the Lenten season. We're using this devotional called Amazing Grace. If you have not picked up your devotional booklet yet, please do so in the fellowship hall after services today. And this Wednesday, we are beginning our Lenten quiet nights at 5.30 in the fellowship hall. There'll be a soup and a bread, a simple dinner uh, before the meditation, and the meditation will be led by our very own Jane Bates. Thank you, Jane. Well, today is the day you've all been waiting for, right? Today's the day. It is Meet Your Deacon Sunday. They have been preparing so hard. I urge every single one of you, even if you have someplace to be after church, please just take a few minutes, go meet your deacon, check that they have your correct information, address, phone number, email, and all that, and I promise you they will bless you with a homemade goodie, and you will leave here really happy. Please stand for our call to worship this morning. It comes to us from Acts chapter 14. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Thank you, Lord, for the rains that nourish our land and bring us the water we so desperately need. May our worship be an honor to you, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let us lift up our voice this morning. I will sing of my Redeemer.
Everyone say this word with me. Amen. Amen. Anyone know what it means? Let it be so or so be it. It's an agreement, right? So when we agree with something in church, instead of saying, uh, I agree, which you can actually say if you want to. No one's stopping you. We often say amen, and that's like an acknowledgement of, yes, that's great, Pastor, or love that, what was sung there, or theologically I align with this, or whatever. So we're going to sing a song called All the People Said Amen. I think you may remember this. And if you don't, that's okay, because there's plenty of room in the chorus where we'll give you an opportunity to shout out amen. And it's when I say things like, and all the people said amen. It's not so hard, is it? Dusty, kick it off, would you?
lost without you This is the end of me This is the end of The youth and children are dismissed to their program. Good. God calls us to repentance and prayer. Return to the Lord your God, for God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In humility and faith, let us go before God and ask for forgiveness. Please pray with me. God of all, we like to think of ourselves as good people, but we confess that we are all too human. You sent your Son into the world to bring us to you. We hear your directions for us, but we do not heed them. When we come to temptations, we are too easily overcome. We are sometimes jealous of others, desiring what they have. We give in to anger. We covet. We worship idols of our own making. Forgive us, Lord. Fill us with a renewed hope. Help us to grow stronger, enabled by your Holy Spirit to rise above the pettiness. The pettiness that we may serve you and we may bring your presence into this world. Amen. God does not call us to be perfect in our love, only willing to grow in our love for each other and for him. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God reaches down to us again and again and again and assures us that we are his beloved children. The good news is this. In Christ Jesus, we are loved, we are accepted, and we are forgiven.
actually one of Jason's friends and a pastor because Mason, and I'm not sure if you know this, but the community of pastors at Costa Mesa is We love one another, we support one another, and when one, one of us gets sick, like happened with Jason earlier this week, uh, we are happy to get to step in and just come alongside of one another. And so I'm really happy to be here with you. And I didn't know this when I said yes, but my mom informed me this morning that she actually grew up in this church when she was young. And so she and her mom, Dottie to Russia, uh, were a part of this church. And so it's going to be fun. I don't think ever been in this fellowship. I didn't even know that this room existed. <laughs> um, and, and, and I know that Jason's normally in there, but I kind of wander around like a caged tiger, and I don't want to fall off the steps. <laughs> what are we looking at? Oh, am I not? What's up? You're muted on your end. Of course I am. <laughs> if there are not tech... Hey! Hi! Good morning. So, so all of those nice things I said about Jason that are in the recording, just know that I said those about you. Um... So today is the first Sunday of Lent, and that means that we are in the lectionary going to some passages. In fact, there's one passage that we're going to be in today, in Matthew chapter 4. And if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn there. When Jason mentioned where uh, he was asking me to speak out of, I got really excited because this is one of those passages that for most of my life was an awkward passage, but then as I got to know it, it's become one that I really, really love. And as you're turning to Matthew chapter 4, let me really briefly paint the picture contextually so we know where we're at in this narrative. Jesus has just finished being baptized in the Jordan River. His his cousin John baptizes him. And in this moment, we see the, the, the Holy Spirit descend like a dove and rest on Jesus. And we see the Father speaking from heaven, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. This, that's one of my favorite passages and one of my favorite statements in all of Scripture. And I also love this passage because it's a, a moment where we get a glimpse of all three parts of the triune God working together. We see Jesus being obedient to the Father and really inaugurating his public ministry with this baptism. This is where he goes from obscurity kind of being thrust on the scene. We see the Father blessing His Son, reminding Him who He is, reminding Him what He is going to be about, His Father's business. And we see the Holy Spirit empowering Jesus for His public ministry. And you might be thinking, well, why would Jesus need to be empowered for His public ministry? I thought He was God in human flesh. And He is. But when he came into our world, when he took on human flesh, he emptied himself of his divine power so that he could enter into our reality and understand what it's like to be us. He became fully human, and in order to do that, he needed to relinquish his divine power, the power through which he, the Word of God, spoke the world, or was the one that was spoken the world into existence and held it together. And so it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is able to walk on water and feed multitudes and cast out demons and heal broken bodies. And this is a really good thing, and one thing that I wanted to touch on before we actually get to the passage we're going to this morning, because this is what makes Jesus accessible to us. The writer of Hebrews points to this very thing, that Jesus was just like us, that he had been emptied of his power. And he says this is what makes him such a good high priest because he's not the kind of high priest that can't possibly understand what we experience in life. 
He's the kind of high priest that experienced exhaustion, experienced sickness, experienced discouragement, experienced sorrow, felt pain. And because of that, we can, he was even tempted, although unlike us, he didn't succumb to that temptation. But because of his humanity, because he had emptied himself, that's what makes him so unbelievably approachable. We can come just as we are, even when we are not at our best. We can come honestly. One of my mentors used to say, prayer isn't a time to be good, it's a time to be honest. We can come as we are, which is a really good thing, because here we are. So Jesus is blessed by the Father. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And now off he goes into his public ministry, right? Well, not so fast. Because apparently the Holy Spirit has some other plans for him before he gets there. Let's go ahead and begin reading in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now let's pause there for a moment. Because this is the part that has caused me to, for most, most of my young life, look at this passage in confusion. Why on earth would the very first thing that the Father and the Holy Spirit do to Jesus is lead him out into the wilderness to be tempted. In fact, it doesn't even make sense because in the book of James, we're told that the Father doesn't tempt anybody, that we're tempted by our own evil desires. So isn't this a straight contradiction in Scripture? But here's what I found. Anytime that I see what appears to be a contradiction in Scripture, I have found invariably that the issue is not with Scripture, but with me, with my interpretation of it. I somehow am missing some information that causes me to misinterpret what it's actually saying, and this is absolutely the case here. You see, both the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit know that there is an adversary, that there is is the Satan who has a tendency a long track record of seeking to undo anything and everything that the Father attempts to do. Anytime the Father tries to do something, He comes in and tries to mess it up. Anytime the Father speaks something over somebody, Satan is right on his heels trying to whisper, trying to sow weeds of doubt in with those seeds of hope and identity and purpose. And He's been doing it from the very beginning. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. After the Father had created Adam and Eve in His image, and and they spent time together, in wanders, in slithers, the great accuser. And I want to mention that Satan is not actually his name. It's a title. Satan means accuser, or or, uh, yeah, the accuser. And so in comes the accuser, and he, he slithers in and he whispers, hey, Did God really say not to touch that fruit? (laughs) Listen, you realize he's lying to you, don't you? He's withheld something from you because he doesn't want you to be like him. But that fruit can give you what he's withheld from you. He's been trying to twist and misinterpret from the very beginning. And And the Father knows that He's about to show up. He knows He's coming. He knows that the accuser will show up soon. And so, in preparation, 
He leads Jesus out into the wilderness, out into the lonely places, out away from all of the distractions to spend time with his son. So that as he prays in that solitary place, as he fasts and just spends that time, every time his stomach grumbles as a reminder to fix his eyes back on his father, he allows the truth of what the father has just spoken over him and what he's inviting him into to begin to permeate his soul. So that he grows so intimately familiar with the voice of his father that when another voice shows up, he will not have to question for even a moment where it's coming from, or whether there's any truth to it. So what I want us to see, and what was so revolutionary for me, is the recognition that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness not to put him into a position of weakness so that the accuser can act as his quality control agent just to make sure that Jesus really is worthy of what God has just spoken over him. It's not putting him into a position of weakness. It's actually putting him into a position of strength so that he will be able to recognize the voice of the Father from the voice of the accuser. Make sense? Let's keep reading. Verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That is the understatement of the century. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now notice what the form of his first temptation looks like. It is to attack the very thing that the Father has just spoken over him. What did the Father say? This is my Son whom I love, and I'm so pleased in him. What does the accuser, the enemy do? He points right at that statement and says, if that's really true, then prove it. If you're something special, then turn these, bread into stone, or turn these stones into bread. The beautiful thing about Jesus is he knows that it's true. He doesn't need to prove it to the accuser or to himself. He's not insecure about it. Like, I know that God said that to me, but is it really true? Maybe I do need to do something just to show him and to show myself that there's truth to it. He doesn't need to. And so instead, he responds by pointing to Scripture. He points to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but upon every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, yes, I need sustenance, but just eating food is not what I need to sustain myself. Doing the will of the Father sustains me. So round one goes to Jesus. But the accuser does not give up easily. And so he changes the venue, but he brings the same attack. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the Son of God, same attack, trying to undermine, trying to sow weeds of doubt in with the seeds of identity. If you really are the Son of God, then throw yourself down because it's written. And now here he quotes Scripture himself. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. So if it really is true that you're the Son of God, then prove it. Jump. Because Scripture says that he won't let you strike a foot. If you think for a moment that you and I are the only ones who have access to God's Word in order to protect ourselves, you're fooling yourself. 
Our enemy has studied Sun Tzu. He knows that the best way to defeat your enemy is to know your enemy. Or maybe Sun Tzu studied him. I don't know. But the point is, he knows God's word backwards and forwards. He knows what it says. And he is not above ripping it out of its context. Like we might rip one of those branches off of a tree and then beating us over the head with it to try to beat us into submission. He's not above that. He will use any weapon he can, even if that weapon is twisting God's word towards his own ends. But here's the thing. Jesus not only knows God's word, he knows the, word, he knows the one that the word points to. He knows the Father's heart. And he knows that that was not the heart of what that is saying. And so once again, he doesn't rise to the bait. He doesn't jump to say, look, I'm going to prove it. Instead, once again, he points to Scripture. He points to a different passage in Deuteronomy where it says it is also written, verse 7, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So yes, it might say that in Isaiah. But to try to do that would be to directly contradict what God says. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Round two goes to Jesus. Now, The enemy recognizes that he can't get Jesus to question who he is. So now he's going to target something else, the purpose for which Jesus came. Do you guys know what the purpose that Jesus came to do is? To seek and save the lost, right? He Kind of of if we step back just a little bit, the big purpose is to inaugurate or to help reestablish God's kingdom reign upon this earth. And in order to do that, that means going after all of those prodigal image bearers who had bought into the lies of the enemy, who had sold themselves into slavery to sin. That's who he came after. And the enemy knows it. And so his next attack is towards that. And he's basically going to say, well, actually, let's read it first, and then we'll talk about what it says. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. And he says, all of this I will give to you if you will just bow down and worship me. In other words, I know what you came to do. I know what your intent is. And I can give it to you without any effort on your part. You won't need to sweat for it. You won't need to suffer for it. You won't need to bleed for it. And you won't need to die for it. All you need to do is bend a knee to me. Worship me and it's yours without any pain, without any suffering, without any sorrow. Jesus says to him, get away from me, Satan. Get away from me, accuser. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Again, pointed to Deuteronomy chapter 6. All of, his, all of the ways that He repelled Him were found in Deuteronomy 6 or Deuteronomy chapter 8, by the way. Then the devil left Him and the angels came and attended to Him. Okay, so there's a lot there. And I've just gone through it really, really quickly. But that's because there's a lot of things that we can pull out and look at and learn from in this. The first thing I want us to recognize that this passage reveals to us is that we have a very real enemy, or I should say that the Father has a very real enemy. And he has sought from the beginning to thwart the Father's purpose. When he couldn't overthrow him, how do you hurt somebody that you can't hurt? You hurt somebody that they care about. 
That puts us in the crosshairs. And we have a very real enemy who is prowling around looking for somebody whom he may devour. And he is not above lying to us. He's not above trying to suggest that what the Father has spoken of our life is not true. He's not above asking leading questions that cause us to question our value, our identity. He's been doing it from the beginning. He did it to Jesus, and he does it to us all the time. That's the first thing we need to recognize is that we have an enemy, and he will come after us. The second thing that we can learn from this is the way that Jesus withstood him. And I I need to point out that our job is not to destroy the Satan. You don't need to conquer him. God will do that. If you read Revelation, you see we already know how this ends. Our one and only purpose is to resist his attacks, just like Jesus did. Jesus didn't get into a wrestling match with him. He didn't start throwing fists. Jesus simply resisted the temptation to prove to Satan or to even himself that what he was saying had any truth whatsoever. And how did he do that? Time and again, he used the word of God. He has hidden the word of God in his heart so that when those lies come, when the twisted truths come about you are a sinner. Yeah, that's true. For Jesus it wasn't, but for us, yeah, that's true. But the insinuation of you're a sinner is that nobody would want anything to do with you. That if anybody knew it... All right, this is my area. This is the sanctified speaking spot. Got it. All right, cool, we're gone. So if anybody knew this, they would be disgusted. So you better hide that down deep. Put on a happy face over a hurting heart. Don't let anybody know what a despicable human being you are. And what he's encouraging us to do is create shadow areas in our life where we pretend that we don't feel insecure, but where we really are insecure because those areas of insecurity in our life, that's his playground. That is where he attacks us. How does a roaring lion devour animals? He makes them think. He he cuts them off from the rest of the pack so that he can then begin to attack them without the rest of the pack protecting him. So he'll try to isolate you with shame. He will try to tell you you don't belong. You might as well stay home instead. How did Jesus resist his attacks? He used God's word. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul refers to God's Word in in the book of Ephesians as the sword of the Spirit. When he's talking about the armor of God, not the armor that we put on so that we can take the fight to the enemy and defeat him, but the armor of God that we can put on so that we can resist his attacks, accepting and, and anticipating that those attacks will come. The whole purpose of the armor of God that he lays out in the end of Ephesians, which I know you guys just studied through, is defensive in nature, including the Word of God. I'm going to just point this out. I'm not sure if you guys talked about it. The only offensive weapon in the entire arsenal is prayer. Everything else is defensive in nature, including the Word of God. The Word of God, which is sharper than any double-edged sword, helps us to defend ourselves from the attacks of the enemy. 
Because it reminds us of what is true when he tries to twist that truth. But as we've already seen, our enemy knows God's word as well, and he is not above twisting it. And I have seen really well-meaning Christ followers who have wandered down some really dark paths that has led to some huge destruction in their own walk with God, in their marriage, with their children. Because they have accepted things that are not true, they've let God's word be twisted. And it's metastasized into something destructive rather than something healing and beneficial and protective. So it's not enough just to know God's word. We, like Jesus, need to become so intimately familiar with the voice of the one that that word points to. That's the point of it. Just having God's word, you you could memorize this entire thing and still be so far from the heart of your Father. And there's a lot of people in Scripture that are just like that. The Pharisees, a lot of them, knew God's word intimately, but they didn't know the one that the word pointed to. So it's not enough just to know his word. We need to know the one that the word points to. And how do we do this? How do we do it? Well, for Jesus, he did it by going off into the lonely places, carving out some space for silence and solitude, far away from the busy demands of life, far from the crowds that were clamoring for him to heal them, far from the the theological experts that wanted to grill him on every point. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness, and over the course of those 40 days, Jesus becomes even more intimately familiar with the Father's voice so that when the enemy's voice, when the accuser's voice speaks up, he can automatically tell that he's speaking lies, that it's not the voice of his Father. And by the way, I will point out that this is exactly how the the Internal Revenue Service will help train their people to spot forgeries. Do, Do you know how they do it? You would think that what they would do is they would put their, their specialist in a room with a whole bunch of forged dollar bills or hundred dollar bills so that they could see all the different ways that people make mistakes in their printing, but that's not what they do. They put them in a room full of only real bills, and as they touch them and look at them and smell them maybe even, as they spend time with them, they become so intimately familiar with the truth that they can spot a fraud, they can spot a forgery a mile away, and that's exactly what time and silence and solitude does for Jesus, and it's why we need it so desperately. Because if Jesus needed that time to be able to withstand the attacks of the enemy, we need that time as well. I love the way that Henry Nouwen articulates the the absolute powerful necessity of solitude. He says this, Without solitude, it's virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. Solitude begins with a time and a place for God and Him alone, not with God and your cell phone, not with God and your, your watch that, that is just an extension of your cell phone, not with God and a whole bunch of other people, time and solitude with God alone. If we really believe not only that God exists, but also that he is actively present in our lives, healing, teaching, and guiding, 
we need to set aside a time and a space to give him our undivided attention. Solitude is imperative. I wish I could, I could probably take weeks to point out why that is, particularly in our fast-paced life. For those of you who are raising children, you get, you desperately need that time. Just as much as somebody who is retired needs that time, but it's going to be harder for you, so you need to be more ruthlessly intentional to carve it out. We live in a fast-paced world, and if the enemy can't get us to sin, he will get us busy so that we're distracted. He will fill our world with noise. I would suggest that my cell phone is the single greatest noisemaker in my life. It's white noise. Because every time I have a moment to be still, it's right there saying, hey, see what's going on in the world. Hey, see if... See what's going on in the news. Hey, see if anybody emailed you. Hey, see if anybody liked that post you put up there. Like that meme. There's always something to preoccupy us. And we need to ruthlessly carve out space for silence and solitude. So how do we do this? How do we begin to carve out space so that we can, one, grow more used to silence Because for those of us who are used to noise, silence can be deafening. If I kept this up, you would get probably pretty uncomfortable. I would probably get uncomfortable. We're not used to silence. We're not used to solitude. We always want somebody to be with us. So, now, some of you are really good at it. Introverts right now are like, preach it, brother! <laughs> Those of us who are extroverts are like, dude, would you be quiet? I want to go and hang out with my friends. Just get on with it. I want to meet my deacon. <laughs> so how can we begin to intentionally carve out space? I'm going to just give you some ideas. I hope that you will choose one or two of these and try to implement them this week. One way that you might seek to carve out space in solitude is to capture moments where you already have it, such as in those still quiet moments when you just wake up, but before the demands of the world come crashing down on you. As you lay there in bed, hopefully you haven't hit the snooze button a dozen times at this point. As you lay there in bed, Perhaps the first thing you can do is just to acknowledge God's imminent presence with you. He may be the transcendent creator of the universe, but he is intimately present with us. He's right there with you. All you need to do is acknowledge his presence. Good morning. Do you have anything you want to say to me? And then just be quiet. Our prayer time isn't just a time to give a laundry list of demands. Do this, Daddy, so then I'll, be, I'll like you. Right? Otherwise, I'm going to be mad. Prayer is also a time to be quiet and to listen. To see if there's anything he wants to say to us. Then a a really low-hanging fruit, but something that's really important. There's a reason why pastors tend to harp on this. is just to carve out time, either in the morning or in the evening, where you can spend time with God. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in his word. You want to get to know him? This points to him. This is not your Savior, but this points to your Savior. Spend time in his word. Or just sit there in silence. 
Sometimes I will read one verse or even a portion of a verse, and the Holy Spirit will just kind of stop me, and I'll dwell on it. Like some of you dwell on a Werther's, right? You just kind of let it sit there and dissolve on your tongue. Others of you chew through it really, really quickly. Another thing you might want to try to do is drive in your vehicle with no radio on, no, no music, no talk radio, no white noise. Drive in silence. That might be uncomfortable at first, but it's one of the best places to train yourself to get comfortable with silence. And I, I am shocked at the number of times that I hear God speaking to me as I'm driving. I, I notice a lot more. I probably drive a lot safer when I'm not on autopilot thinking about whatever is being talked on the radio. Another thing you might consider is to literally put yourself into lonely places. Jesus went away from the crowds, went out into nature. I find that I can hear God's voice so much more clearly out in the cathedral of creation. So I regularly either go down to the beach or down to Back Bay, and I just go for a walk, and I have a conversation with my God. And, I, and, he, and he shows me things about myself and about what he's up to when I do that. The point this morning is that you were created to be in intimate relationship with your Father. He loves you, and he wants to commune with you. And he also recognizes that we have an enemy who is going to come after us we need to schedule regular times with our Father because our enemy, the adversary, the accuser, he is not going to make an appointment. He will show up unannounced when you least expect it. And he will whisper things in your ears that will sound so true because they confirm what you already feel. Feelings are fickle. And our enemy loves to prey upon them. It's imperative that you know the voice of your father. This is the last thing, and it wasn't in my notes, and I'm, just, I'm about finished, so I'm not sure who's coming up next, but just be prepared. Um, how can I tell the difference? This is one of the most helpful things that anybody ever pointed out to me about recognizing the voice of the father or recognizing the voice of the Holy Spirit versus the voice of the enemy. So if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. The father will convict us. The enemy will condemn us. And that is a massive difference. Because we all are growing. I'm a parent. I've got two boys. They decided they wanted to hang and listen to dad, which is a miracle today. I've got two boys. I love them enough that I want to discipline them and train them to be amazing men because I'm not raising children. I am raising young men, even though they look like children right now. And so, yes, I want to train up my children, and sometimes that means I need to say some hard things, but I do so in love, not to destroy them, but to build them up. Their adversary, just the opposite. His goal is not to build us up or strengthen us, it is to tear us down and to make us disqualify ourselves so that we say, I know, that who, the God's, I know who God suggests I am, but I just don't believe it about myself. I have nothing to offer. No reason he could possibly love me, so why even try? 
So while our enemy will condemn us, our Father will convict us. And if you feel convicted, chances are you're hearing from the Father. And if you feel condemned, if you begin to feel like, I suck, that is not the voice of your Father. And like Jesus, you can say, get away from me, because I am a child of God. All right? Thank you guys for letting me be here with you this morning. Pastor Eric, what a powerful message. Now is the time in our service when we recognize God's abundant blessings and give back to him just a portion, just a portion of what he has blessed us with. If you are, well, you are here today in worship, you can leave your tithes and your offerings on the plates in the narthex. If you're listening on the podcast, please send your tithes and your offerings to Presbyterian Church of the Covenant, P.O. Box 2128, Costa Mesa, California, 92627. Will you please pray with me? Gracious God, thank you for providing for all of our needs and blessing us beyond our expectations. Thank you, too, for this church family that so lovingly takes care of one another. Thank you for bringing Pastor Eric to us this morning. What a message, Lord. Thank you for speaking through him. We are truly grateful. May our tithes and our offerings bless and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.
may be seated. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the God, the one that Pastor Eric just talked to us. That's the God that loves us so much that he hears our prayers and he comforts us. Please pray with me. Holy, loving, and merciful God, there is so much for us to be grateful for. But sometimes we forget to pause and notice your blessings. And thank you. So today, as we are beginning our Lenten journey, draw our eyes to you and create moments for us to pause and reflect on your goodness, your loving kindness, your faithfulness, your chesed. Father, we continue to pray for the Turks and Syrians affected from the 7.8 magnitude earthquake two years, two weeks ago, and the 6.3 magnitude earthquake this week. We pray for the families and friends of the more than 47,000 that perished. Lord, calm the earth from shifting and causing more earthquakes in this already devastated region. Bring aid swiftly to the region to help in the recovery effort. Meet the needs of all those displaced that have no place to live in the middle of this very cold winter. Bring warmth, bring sustenance, bring safety, bring comfort. Be with them, we pray, O Lord. Mighty God, we can scarcely believe that we have been praying for an end to the war in Ukraine for a year now. Thank you, Lord, that you have sustained the Ukrainian people and equipped them with strength to fend off their aggressor. Hear us, Father, as we lift our prayers for peace and for justice. Thwart the plans of the aggressor in Jesus' name and bring this war to an end. Lord, we continue to pray for the Ukrainian citizens. Keep them safe. Meet them their needs and reunite their families soon. Loving Lord Jesus, we thank you for the rain and pray for all who are unhoused in the midst of these storms. Keep them safe, we pray, and lead them to shelter. Prompt neighbors to help those who are in need, for you teach us that when we help the least of these, we honor you. Merciful Father, we miss all who aren't with us today. Lord, be with each one according to their need. Father, we lift up Pastor Jason and his family and Pastor Sharon. Touch them with your healing hand and restore their bodies. We pray, too, for your healing for Dorothy Ceccarini, Charlotte DeMott, Sam Allen, Jim Clark, Patty Ernest, Buzz Coslin. Keith Coslin and Lewis Lindsay. May your ever spirit be with each one and restore each of them to full health. Lord, we pray for those who grieve and continue to lift up the families of Virginia Murphy, Ginny Sager, and Kay Deer. May they feel your presence and your loving comfort. We pray too for Tian Chung who left for Taiwan this week and is grieving his mother's passing. Be with him and sustain him in his sorrow. 
Unite us as only you can do, praying together as you taught your disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stand as we continue our worship with our final hymn, To God Be the Glory.
please join me in a round of applause for our guests oh, gosh. today. Thank you so much. Oh, stop much that. Thank you. Thank okay. you. What a powerful word you got. After the benediction and postlude, please, before you go to your car, join us in Fellowship Hall and come meet your deacon. Thank you so much. If you would, um, I think that the most fitting way that I could end today is just to invite you to extend a hand, put them out as if you guys have given offerings. Now I want to put your hands out as if you're receiving a blessing. And I feel like your Father in heaven wants you to know this. You are my child, and I love you more than you could possibly fathom. doesn't matter that you sometimes mess up. doesn't matter that you sometimes misrepresent my heart or misunderstand my heart. I love you. Just watching you grow into the man, the woman that I have created you to be brings me great joy. Hold on to that. Hold on to that truth because you have an enemy who will whisper in your ear that it's not true. You have an adversary who will whisper in your ear that you need to prove it. You need to earn it. You need to do something. And when you mess up, you've got to do something to make up for it so that he will love you. His love for you never wavers. And those of you who are parents in this room, you get it better than those of you who don't because you have had to love some kind of unlovable people. Our Father loves us even better and more purely than we do. And if you are one of those who has been holding, who has been keeping your distance from the Father because you don't feel worthy, I want to remind you that He loves you more than you could fathom. You want to know how much He loves you? Just look at that cross. He loves you this much. Go in that love. Have a wonderful week. Thank you.